I'm Susie Anetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology. In this week's podcast episode, I'm talking to Melbourne-based designer and curator, Dale Hardiman, who's joining me in the Design Anthology offices in Melbourne. Thanks for joining me on the podcast, Dale. Thank you for having me on this dreary day in Melbourne. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it was quite sunny when I left Mm. and I've come back and it's definitely looking very Melbourne out there (laughs) again. (laughs) It's exciting to be chatting to you in this format. We've had a couple of conversations over the years. It's nice to be recording this one. Uh, And so I thought maybe we'd go back to the very, very beginning, talk about your childhood um, and what you were like and whether you were always creative as a child. Was that evident early on? I mean, I guess the answer would be yes. Yeah, so I grew up in Bendigo. So I moved to Melbourne only 12 years ago with my now wife, who was my partner then. Um, and we moved to Melbourne not really knowing anyone here. Um, and I guess, you know, throughout education, I always went towards focusing on art-based subjects. So when I studied Year 12, basically everything was art-based. And I was, I guess, more in tune with, with selecting teachers that I thought were good for me as opposed to just selecting subjects. And so, I mean, throughout almost all of my childhood and growing up to be 18 or so when I was still studying. Yeah, always creative. I would say I was always creative. But it was never the kind of direct creativity that would lend itself to object design. So I, I guess I thinking about these questions prior to coming here, I, was, I remember I was always kind of a documenter, you could say, as in I would always sketch things around me. And I almost remembered... I remember the other day that a, a thing that was very specifically weird that I remember that I used to do was when I used to catch the bus, I'd have a notebook and I used to write down number plates on cars. And so it wasn't for any other reason than some kind of documentation. So I had a notebook when I was young, which is full of number plates. I'm only laughing because I used to do that as well. That's <laughs> awesome. I'm so yeah. relieved to hear that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I think it's interesting that you've kind of used the word documenter. Mm. Um it's quite an interesting distinction. So then I guess at what age do you remember kind of thinking that you wanted to have a career in design? I actually read that you wanted to sort of pursue fine art. and in graphic des- design. And graphic design. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So when did the sort of shift to, you know, what you did end up studying happen? Well, it was really a decision based on my outcomes at school. So I, you know, I went to Bendigo Senior, Sec- uh, Bendigo Senior Secondary College and studied year 12. I actually did year 13 because my year 12 results were so poor. Um, I used to be a little more party than I am now. So it's not that I wasn't intelligent enough for school. I just didn't really care so much to study hard. Mm. Um, and so it was really only that when I started to realize the enter schools required to get into design and art subjects were really high, which I really couldn't understand that that level of academia required to be creative and study a creative discipline mm. required you to have such an, a high VCE score, which seemed counterintuitive to me because you'd have to get the highest of art scores to get even close to touching these scores. So it wasn't until I went to open days places like RMIT and Deakin that I saw that actually wasn't attainable to study either fine art or graphic design and I I wouldn't be able to get into either of those courses with my current score. Um, And it wasn't actually until I was with my partner that I was flipping through the kind of VCE book or whatever it is to find the things you might want to study. Mm. And I came across furniture design by chance. And (laughs) and the thing that really stood out to me is it didn't require a score. It was just based on folio. Um, And so my rationale at the time was, you know, 
maybe I could study furniture, but think about graphic and think about fine art through that medium because mm. it's the only funnel that I could get within the kind of, you know, that I could study a, an associate degree or a degree. The, the only way to get in to that kind of creative discipline was by studying furniture. Yeah, right. That's so interesting. So you ended up studying, if I'm not wrong, industrial design at RMIT. I studied furniture design first okay. and then went on to study industrial design for two years. And so the furniture design course was the one based on folio, not on any educational right. scores, thankfully. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that does seem quite counterintuitive. Um, so I guess my question then is, you know, has the reality of a career in design so far, I mean, you are still very young, has it lived up to what your hopes and expectations were at that at that time? I So the way my wife and I look at our lives is she's a long-term thinker and I'm a short-term thinker. So well, I never think too far ahead of the world. You know, I kind of live day by day, week by week, month by month. And never get too far ahead of over a year. So I guess when we say hopes and dreams, or even the word dream is interesting. That like I, I guess I've never really, in, I've ne- never really been a dreamer. You know, I've kind of been really quite practical in the day to day of things. Mm. And so I never really had any expectations of what furniture designer, object designer, industrial design could be. I was just kind of there, and I was interested in learning. And so I think maybe that's why my outcomes over the years have been relatively different to most other designers of the previous generation. You know, being spread across multiple. Uh, areas of design is that I've never really thought kind of literally about what has existed. I like to think that my, you know, what I do, the best thing I'm at, the best thing I'm good at is uh, is lateral thinking, and so really approaching things with a lateral mind as opposed to thinking, you know, this is a dis- this is a career in design, and this is the direction you take. It's kind of like, well, there's all these millions of other things surrounding it. Why can't they be brought into that? Mm. Yeah, I think. That's becoming much more so. I don't know if you would agree with that. Um, I don't know whether it was much more sort of siloed previously, but it does seem like there's a lot more cross-disciplinary and cross-pollination happening and it seems much more acceptable than perhaps what it used to be. You know, when I moved to Melbourne 12 years ago, um, this was 2010, I'd just kind of arrived in Melbourne and the first thing I could find for design was fringe furniture. It was the first exhibition I went to in in Melbourne upon moving here. It's the first exhibition I went to was the substation and was fringe furniture. And um, it just so happened that Edwards Morse, Ben Edwards now of Studio Edwards, had done the exhibition design for the building. Um, And they dumped wood chips into the interior of the building. And so my partner and I walked in. I had no idea of what furniture design was going to be like in Australia or globally even at this point. I'd just, you know, gotten into a course. And I walked Mm. into this building and it was thriving. There was all of these people, which I didn't assume to be furniture types, and the building was full of wood chips. And I thought, this is this is the kind of thing I can get into, you know? <laughs> like, who thinks of putting wood chips in a substation? And from that was the real kind of tick-over moment in my brain of, like, you know, this is something I could really get into. Mm. And do you think, I'm just curious, like, whether that was maybe, uh, you know, your conceptual brain, you know, the, the part of your brain or all of your brain that's interested in fine art, do you think that was this kind of, yeah, the very conceptual approach to design that you weren't aware of, that you were really kind of connecting with in that moment? I think it was the recontextualization. You know, like I've always been interested in context, you know, about what that what context supplies and what context says about things. And so to walk in and my 20-year-old self, not even understanding how or why they got these wood chips into the building, into this, you know, old substation, just immediately thought, like, this is beautiful. Like, this is a beautifully interior design treatment. I'm assuming they probably had very little budget, very little time for a competition like Fringe Furniture. So what a beautiful outcome. I think it's about opportunity as well. So, you know, 10 years ago when I moved to Melbourne, or 12 years ago when I moved to Melbourne, it was all about the kind of the royalty-based design. You know, it was about designing furniture for international brands. It was about going to Milan each year and just fingers crossed someone likes you enough to pick up your product. Whereas 
since let's say Melbourne Design Week as the instance, since Melbourne Design Week, you know, why I haven't even thought about going to Milan, mm. you know, like what, what is actually in Milan for me? I'm more interested in what's happening here in Australia and what we can do mm. as opposed to, you know, ticking a box or trying to be becoming potentially more famous or famous in some regard by mm. going overseas. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I actually interviewed Adam Goodrum, who uh, I know that you know, a couple of weeks ago. And he sort of said the same thing, really, actually, that there's just so many more opportunities in Australia now and that it used to be all about getting to Milan. But now, thankfully, Australia is providing so much more opportunities, which is really exciting. Um, But I'm going to go back to your early career. I'm going to come back to maybe some of that again. So we first met, I think, around 2015, 2016. I don't remember exactly which year it was, but it was in Singapore when you were then part of a trio called Lab de Stu. And you were being showcased at Maison Objet as part of that year's Rising Talent Awards. Um, How did that come about? Like, you know, what was the lead up to the three of you working together and arriving in Singapore as part of this Rising Talent Showcase? I mean, firstly, Labda Stew was quite a funny little group. There was actually originally four of us, Nico Evans, um, who was in the group also. We were just at a cafe across the road from our furniture course one day and we're all kind of individually pursuing our own careers. And we just, I don't really know why, but we decided that it might be more productive if we banded together as a singular group. Maybe we'd seen somewhere internationally that other groups were doing it. But, you know, we were never financially tied to each other. We actually never really collaborated on anything. It was just a matter of gaining recognition. We thought if the four of us were approaching uh, applying for exhibitions or competitions or press collectively, we'd all collectively reap those benefits. And so it meant that, you know, in the first two years, Andre won an award, Adam won an award, and I won an award in the first two years, which meant that from nowhere, this group, of, of four students ended up being in the press quite a lot in a short period of time. Whereas if we'd worked as that individual names, it would have just seemed like, oh, Adam got an award, Andre got an award, Dale got an award. Mm. But because we'd banded together, it meant that all of a sudden people kind of already knew the name. Yeah. And I guess because the, the name was so kind of interesting. I mean, the name has a great story too. And originally it was called Laboratory Design Studio. Um, and we liked that idea of experimentation, a lab being a place to experiment. Um, but Andre had a stutter, a beautiful stutter, I might add. So mm-hmm. he found laboratory a hard word to stay and so, say. So we just agreed, let's just make it Lab Stu as a shortened version. Yeah, right. And it just so happened that Lab Stu is a great name. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I'm quite surprised I never heard that story before. <laughs> um, so you, I guess the three of you or the four of you at that stage felt like there was strength in numbers and that was kind of what propelled you to kind of get this recognition in Singapore. Was that the first time that you'd had any international exposure i think we may have shown in the london design festival that year also i can't quite remember it feels so long ago now um but absolutely the first time we've been recognized as a group collectively so we felt incredibly naive and very youthful at the time as we were <laughs> yes. you know, traveling to singapore <laughs> to show our work and especially considering we'd all worked individually on the works which meant that when you show the four of our works together in one space it just looks a bit wacky because mm. none of the styles are similar you know i was producing work from discarded materials. You know, Andre was making highly refined pieces. Adam was working on very solid timber-based products. Um, A very weird mismatch of ideas (laughs) in one space. But it clearly brought you some attention, though. Um, So, but you're not working together now, though, except that you and Adam have gone on to create Dal Jones, which is a furniture brand. Is that, would you call it that? We call it kind of furniture interior. Interior interior objects is a far more ambiguous term to use, considering we just work on a whole heap of different things as we like. Yeah, I like that. Um, 
and you have a factory that's based in Geelong. Can you talk a little bit about the experience of setting up a manufacturing business and and how that ended up in Geelong rather than Melbourne? I think or Bendigo uh, even. The the best thing I could say is that we have been guided. We were guided by many years, um, just really by naivety. Uh, you know, when Adam and I graduated. So we started Dow Jones in our third year of university because we looked out at the kind of job prospects there were as an industrial designer or designer in Australia. And they were so slim that we went, well, you know what? I was, I think I was, must have been 22 and Adam was 20. And we just said, well, when's a better time to try and attempt to start a business? You know, we, neither of us had any money anyway. So there really was no risk. <laughs> mm. um, and it just so happened that Ash Allen had a factory in Thomastown at the time. And so he decided to rent us out the, you know, the basically the roof space for $50 a week. And so, wow. you know, all we had to do was make $50 a week to be able to, to pay for the, to run the whole business. And so we've kind of just slowly expanded from a tiny little mezzanine space up to, we have two factories now in Geelong, one mm. for timber manufacturing, one for logistics. Um, and I guess it's just grown very naturally. We would like to think that we aren't business people were designers first and then mm. we just so happened to run a business. So everything has happened incredibly organically, naturally, and it's felt right at the time. Mm. Um, you know, we haven't tried to expand to be a huge, ginormous global brand within five years or have business strategies to take over the world. It's more or less we have a small voice and we're trying to do something that we think is relatively interesting and we hope other people like it. Yeah. Absolutely. It seems to be, yeah, gaining quite a lot of exposure now. I'm, and I'm curious to hear what your ambitions are with Dale Jones. Like, where well, would you like to take it? <laughs> I mean, it's funny to think about ambitions. So, I mean, I don't know if Adam would agree with me, but I've always thought about this idea that businesses must grow. Businesses must get bigger. You want to make more money. The staff need to make more money. I agree with that. Absolutely. The directors need to make loads of money. I don't know if I agree <laughs> with that. Um but I've never, I've always been interested in this idea that maybe businesses don't need to grow. Maybe there actually is a kind of comfortable position at which they can do good work and they continue to do good work. So, I mean, I do say that, but we actually need, we're trying to find more staff at the moment because mm. we have too much work um, at the moment. But, you know, I guess my ambitions are for Dow Jones is to, whatever we do is to stay honest with what we do um, and to try and produce. I mean, what our ambitions have been over the last few years really has been to produce more international designers' work in Australia. So our first collaboration that we did with an external designer was Tom Hancock's, who's an Australian-born but New York-based designer. Mm. And the idea was, you know, there's the travel miles and the carbon footprint of product being brought into Australia is quite huge because it has to travel quite a distance. If it's coming mm. from Italy, you know, it's quite a long distance. So why don't we just ask Italian designers to design products and we'll just make them in Geelong. And so we've done that with designers in... Um, in New York, um, we launched a collection with Argentinian studio last year called Volta. Um, are working with a couple of, working with a Swedish designer and another American designer at the moment. And so, why not make Australian-made mm. products more versatile and dynamic by having international designers design them? Yeah, great question. I did not know that. I'm glad I asked you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, aside from Dal Jones, you also have, I guess, an independent design career, if you would call it that, where you're simultaneously creating your own work, which I would describe as perhaps being more conceptual. I don't know if you would agree with that description. Um, and I think perhaps it may be fair to say that you've become known for using um, salvaged material, scrap material. You already talked a little bit about that earlier. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and the work that you're kind of currently working on and, um, and maybe what was shown during design week this year? So it's like, it's like, it's quite funny to think about this idea of using discarded material, um, mostly because when I graduated from Bendigo Senior Secondary College in Bendigo, I took a gap year to afford to move to Melbourne. So I worked at a Malaysian restaurant for a year, um, and that was to save money to be able to move to Melbourne. And, in, and I knew in that year I had to make enough work to apply for furniture design. 
And so basically I started reading books like The Green Imperative, Victor Bapanek, um, which were about ecology and, and the waste issues in the world. And so the two pieces that I pitched to furniture design, which got me into the course, were both made from discarded materials. Um, and so I guess my interest in discarded materials, building waste, all of those topics goes back to when I was 18 is when I began producing those works. I mean, one of them was so naff. It was, you know, I found a fiberglass mannequin torso at the tip and I put a cloth shade for a head, you know, and <laughs> yes. it's quite naff to think about. Um, and then the second piece I made was I found a veneered bent plywood shell and I took the drum out of the center of a washing machine. I thought it was a beautiful industrial designed object. You know, it's mm. a plastic drum. It's got a spiral with all these kind of pieces protruding from it. And I attached that as the base because it was the perfect height for a chair. So I made this pretty naff chair made from a washing machine drum base with a plywood shell. And so, yeah, I guess my interest in discarded material has always been since I was so young, you know, that's mm. quite a long time ago. And, you know, I, I, I guess what I'm trying to th what I try to think about in terms of the output that I produce is that there has to be rationale for all of it. I mean, I like to think I'm quite neurotic. I know that I'm quite neurotic and I try to think through every everything that's possibly happening all the time with what I'm doing. And so I try to rationalize each part of my practice as having a reason or at least not doing something for a reason. So when I when it comes to Dow Jones, I rationalize that practice by producing locally. If we can replace imported product or replica product or something you know, with a higher competitive carbon footprint, that's great. If it helps build Australian manufacturing as well, fantastic. Mm. So there's a reason for its existence. Um, I think if we were just an importer of manufactured goods overseas like other brands, then I don't think there'd be any reason for I couldn't rationalize that. And when it comes to my personal practice, I can't really rationalize making product from new materials, you know, mm. like... I, I've never really seen the interest in doing that either. So since I was 18, I've been making work from discarded materials because I'd like to think that I'm taking a material that's, you know, that's pretty much almost there at the tip in landfill and I'm taking it and putting it into something new, which then goes on to live in someone's home for hopefully 10, 100, 150 years. You mm. know? Is it always at the tip that you're sort of scouring Absolutely. for material? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My wife and I spend quite a lot of time going to all the different tips in the northern suburbs because I like to think that, you know, when people ask me about, you know, what are you working on now for an exhibition or a project that's happening, I, I, I tend to say that I haven't been to the tip yet. Mm. I don't know what the kind of, what that, you know, and I have a project called Common Resources, which is what the work that I did for James Macon this year and for Melbourne Design for was based on a project that I did with Sophie Gannon Gallery in 2018 called Common Resources. But the backstory of that is that my honours thesis at RMIT Industrial Design was a book I published called Common Resources. Mm. And the book was about the facilitation of DIY design, but in a kind of lateral, let's say, let's call it lateral. Um, it was a cookbook. So I, I made this realisation quickly on that DIY books weren't in incredibly intuitive because it felt like putting together Ikea furniture, which people don't love. And so I thought, you know, what's what's a practice that everyone understands and and also understands the instruction guidelines? And that's a cookbook. And so I developed a book called Common Resources where I took projects where I worked with designers in South Korea, Australia, and I think a designer in, in America potentially. This goes back a while. Um, and I put together the, the way to make their projects, which were all DIY projects, but in a matter of a cookbook, the same kind of instruction guidelines, intuitive way. And so when I came to work on this show for Sophie Gannon called Common Resources, I thought, well, let's try to apply that thinking. And since 2018 now, I've been kind of approaching most of my design projects with that Common Resources thinking, which is really the object has to be either gifted to me or I've got to be able to buy it from a tip shop or find mm. it on the side of the road. So that's materials or I can buy some new materials if it's required, like electrical cable, which has to be certified. So mm. must buy that. Mm -hmm. um, and then I only use a hand drill and handsaw. 
Um, and so there are moments throughout the process of making things like what I made from Melbourne Design Fair has a lot of complex angles where it's, you know, it's 10 o'clock at night on a Saturday. It's, it was really quite hot during summer making this work and I'm cutting complex angles with a hand. So I'm like, I could just buy a saw. It would make everything so much easier. And then I have to go, well, I'm dedicated to this process. I must cut it all by hand. And the reason for all of this really is that other people can do this. You know, other people can make that work. Mm. Like it's actually not within the outside the realm of possibilities of anyone of making that common resource any of those projects. Mm. Interesting. Um, so actually, I want to go back to something that I heard you say in an earlier interview where you said that your work was almost anti-technology um, and ask, is that still the case? And how would you, I guess, aside from the salvage materials, how would you describe, you know, what you're trying to explore and achieve with the work that you're creating? I like to think that maybe, and I don't know if this is true, but I like to either set precedents or I like to think about doing things that potentially people haven't done before and then hope that other people might pick those up. Um, you know, like, I guess the best kind of precedent I could speak to, and I, was, I will mention about anti-technologies, you know, 10 years ago, I organized my first group exhibition. When I first moved to Melbourne, I think it was 2012, with my, you know, very close friend, Susanna Henty, we organized an exhibition called Object Future. And that was because there were no group shows for design in Melbourne. It was Furnitex, Design Made Trade, but none. And the reason why we did it was because Susanna Henty was a curator at Brunton Street Gallery. And, you know, every week they had an opening on a Friday. Every single week there was a new art exhibition just at that one gallery in Melbourne. But there was nothing for us to go to, you know, fringe furniture as well. Mm. Um, so we said, why don't we just do it ourselves? You know, and here we are sitting 10 years later and there's over 100 group exhibitions during Melbourne Design Week, 350 programs. And, you know, we did a group exhibition with like 14 people 10 years ago in a tiny little gallery in Brunswick Street. Mm. Um, I'm going to come back to your curatorial approach in a minute, <laughs> but I'll let you answer the yeah, anti-technology sorry. thing um, first. Well, <laughs> I guess, you know, maybe the anti-technology thing that I've spoken about previously is is really that, you know, I, like, I, I think furniture and objects are very funny things. You know, the, the, the idea that there's so much technology produced and used and rare minerals and just all the things that are mined to make a side table. Like, you know, what is the function of a side table? To hold something slightly higher. So why do we need to mine resources, copper in China, and then ship it to South Africa to be refined and then bring it to Australia? And then it gets machined through these very complex machines to make it into a side table to get shipped to Italy. Like all of that technology, it, like it just kind of boggles my mind that all of that happens so I can put my glass slightly higher than it was before on the ground. <laughs> and so when I mention this idea of anti-technology, it's more or less that we have all of these things around us that can provide functions. I guess you'd call it relatively rudimentary, you know, yeah. like a chair is to sit and I understand it. I have an ergonomic chair, so there's a totally a reason for us as humans to sit ergonomically, but for other things like side tables or coffee tables, I think they're quite hilarious. Yeah, it's actually quite ludicrous when you put it like that. And I'm, I'm imagining that most other people haven't really thought about it in that, <laughs> in that sort of context. So thanks for doing that. Um, so that actually kind of leads me quite nicely to my next question, which is uh, about the collaborative group that you are a part of called Friends and Associates. Uh, and I, I would like for you to explain to us what that is and why you created that, or the group of you created that. What's the sort of purpose behind Friends and Associates? Well, Friends and Associates' name, I feel like, is as obvious as, as it could possibly get. So it's about friendship and about associates being about business relationships. And so, you know, at the time that we founded Friends and Associates, which was now, I think, six years ago, I'd worked with Susanna Henty on three exhibitions called Object Future, and then Andre Natoiku and I formed One OK Club, which is about commissioning one-off designed objects where we asked designers to only make one thing so they could spend a million hours or one hour, but they only had to make one thing and never repeat it again. And then Tom Skeen and I kind of met 
and I'd just kind of come for the back of leaving One OK Club and there, there seemed to be a kind of space within Australian contemporary design where, where there was space f- to talk about collaboration and friendship and so I just so happened to form a great friendship with people like Tom Faraday and Ross Gardam and Tom Skeen. And so Tom and I were talking, Skeen and I were talking about, you know, if we were to run exhibitions, you know, there are all of these different platform ideas, but what if we focused on camaraderie? What if we talked about the thing that we do with other designers that people don't see, which is just, we ask them about how they are, how their family is, but that never really gets talked about in terms of being imbued within an object, but they're all about friendships, you know, because I guess the one thing that's, that's really important to know about friends and associates is we don't economically economically gain from any of the sales of the work. So if we sell all of the exhibition, Tom Skin and I don't make any money. And the purpose of that is we're separating commerce from collaboration. So for us, it's about the best possible outcome that we can have with a designer, which means that it allows us to you know, present to designers, potential designers for the show to say, look, we're not going to make any money on your work, but do you want to come and spend a couple of hours just talking about your life? You know, self-portrait was probably the epitome of what Friends and Associates represents, which was, I remember meeting with one of the contributors for the show, going for a beer, and he told me about his life from birth through to now. You know, I learned about his, I think he was 38, 38 years of his life. And I just don't know if we hadn't cultivated that idea of friendship through that exhibition platform, whether or not people would be so open with us. Mm. Yeah, that's so interesting. Um, I So that kind of also leads me quite nicely to my next question, which is about you know, I guess what I would call a curatorial approach. Uh, and I, yeah, it'd be great to have you talk a little bit about how how you go about sort of bringing these groups of people together, um, you know, whether there is a set fixed curatorial approach. I imagine that may change from exhibition to exhibition and whether it's a kind of a group thinking rather than an, an individual approach. I mean, the name itself seems to answer that question for me, but I'll, I'll let you answer that in your own words. Well, we, we tend not to use the word curation or curated. We use facilitation because we see ourselves as, you know, not as curators, but as designers interested in helping others make design. So it's not so much about us, I, as a curator, which is why if you go to any of our exhibitions, you'll never see Tom and my name on the wall. It always says presented by or facilitated by friends and associates because we like to think Friends and Associates is actually bigger than us. You know, it's actually, you know, my wife who's helping me with the exhibition or it's, you know, Tom's partner or it's, you know, Ross Gardam who's been, you know, video calling me and I just so happen to mention an exhibition and he says something. We aren't, I guess, maybe so ego-driven that we have to have our names plastered on the wall. So it's more about other people and a kind of collectivism. Um, I guess our approach is as designers. So every exhibition we produce is thematically considered. So from the exhibition design through the outcomes, everything, we like to think it all through. So Tom and I said from the very beginning, uh, let's not always put our own work in because we, we don't want to be focused on our work over others. So instead, let's treat an exhibition like a design uh, like a design object. And so I guess things like Welcome to Wasteland was a great exhibition to speak about in that respect and that, you know, with Carl Mack and Moore Studio, Matt Tambellini, we created a solar-powered website so that when the sun wasn't up, the website went down. And so it was quite literally about waste. When we invited people to be part of the exhibition, we asked them to keep the waste that they produced by making the objects. So we were telling the story of not only these are objects that could save the world, but also look at all the waste they created to do this. Um, and then for the, design, the, for the actual vinyl signage, you know, vinyl's plastic, it goes in the bin. And so we found this gun called the ABS 260, which is a thermal printing digital handgun printer, which means that we did the entire vinyl, um, the vinyl for the entire exhibition using one tiny little small ink cartridge. Um, 
So we like to think that, you know, our approach to exhibitions are not only about the people, but also how is the exhibition as a whole applied? You know, if we were to do an exhibition about waste and make huge amounts of MDF plinths and have them painted and throw them in the bin afterwards and put plastic vinyl signage up, it would seem counterintuitive to the the potential for the show Mm. to say something. Well, and also the cup idea as well. I think I remember (laughs) when I first reconnected with you back in Melbourne, I was, you know, pretty impressed that it was a BYO cup kind of event, which, Yeah. yeah, again, very much speaks to what you were trying to do there. Uh, so I, w- I want to go back to talking about the design scene in Australia. Uh, you sort of touched on it a couple of times in that obviously there are now a number of brands, furniture brands, producers uh, that are around and that, you know, there are opportunities to work with more so than perhaps when you were at university or when you first graduated. Uh, and also Melbourne Design Week and this kind of platform for putting on shows which didn't necessarily exist when you were starting to, to do that yourself. Um, could you talk a little bit more about, you know, how, how much has it changed, um, the design scene in Melbourne, Australia, uh, in, and perhaps where else could it still have potential to change and grow? It's completely changed. Um, it's a, a completely different thing that it was 10 years ago or 12 years ago when I moved to Melbourne. You know, like the conversations we were having in industrial design or furniture design was about commercial outcomes, primarily about commercial outcomes. At the time when job when Adam and I were looking for job prospects, it was like I think Ross Didier had an intern, Adam Goodrum had one staff member, and Scavello were hiring. Um, and so there's such a difference now. You know, like we're hiring now. We're one of hundreds of small businesses in Australia producing furniture interior objects. Um, it's just a completely different. I think it's a matter of cultivation. So I think it's because both Simone Leamon and Ewan McEwan have helped cultivate over the past six years, and Timothy Moore too, have helped cultivate this space of, of experimentation. You know, when I, so when I talk about context earlier, it's really about the reason why we started Object Future was because we wanted to recontextualize design as these kind of sculptural things, things to be looked at, not just to be sat on. And so the, you know, the first thing we did was put everything on plinths. You can't sit on the chair, you have to think about the chair. Um, and so, you know, I went to the RMIT Furniture Graduation Show in December last year, and I spoke to a lot of the students who were graduating, and half of them were doing Melbourne Design Week shows. Half of them had talked about starting their own businesses. You know, when I was back finishing furniture design, it was like, oh, God, what do we do now? Mm. Whereas I could see the, the excitement, the energy, and I, I had even seen some of those students had already started businesses and selling product. Um, and so it was quite amazing to see uh, only in 10 years had passed, but how that industry has completely changed. And I think it does in part have to do with social media. And so we at Dow Jones say that social media has had a huge, a huge difference in our business and that we don't have to have $50,000 to advertise. We can mm. post a photo if someone likes it, they'll reshare it. And then you can think about strategies to get people to reshare things or, you know, build communities within these spaces that actually don't cost any money. Um, so I think those social media tools have helped businesses go from, needing to create huge amounts of capital, take credit card debt on to get advertisements in printed material to just putting things out to the internet. And, you know, funnily enough, some people just like things. Mm. Well, I'm glad you use the word community because I feel like that is a word that often comes to my mind if I were to think of you and the role that you, one of the many roles that you play. Uh you know, what would you say still needs to happen potentially to kind of support the creative community in Melbourne or maybe potentially, you know, the wider Australian design community? Um, I think we need design festivals in other cities. Uh-huh. I mean, I know there is a city design <laughs> festival, but it's not as large as Melbourne Design Week. But I've been forever talking to designers in both South Australia and Western Australia about let's start doing Friends and Associates projects in other states, but we don't have to be involved. So, mm. you know, asking people like Andrew Carvoth or Liam Fleming, like, do a show as Friends and Associates. We can talk to you about it, but you can just have the show. Um, 
just so people aren't having to fly over every... I think there's a huge um, output of work that's happening in March specifically, and then maybe not so much. September is Sydney Design Festival, which Mm. I haven't... Unfortunately, I haven't been able to go up to to see. But, I mean, other points. And I, I think, you know, that's what Tom and I are actually thinking about now is that we, I set out at the beginning to do group shows because there were no group shows. Mm. Now, I, Tom and I talk frequently about, are we redundant? You know, are we the old guys now <laughs> in the kind of middle generation of designers who are just doing group shows like everyone else? If there's 100 exhibitions during Melbourne Design Week, maybe we can actually do something which is more important. Maybe there's educational r- programs we can run. Maybe it's about a more direct mentorship program. You know, when Tom and I do these exhibitions, we are to go back to Friends Associates, but when we do these exhibitions, we actually think that, you know, the exhibition, although the, the entire exhibitions are always about the public viewing the work, we think that's the first and foremost. It's not about making academic text where it makes us look very cool and interesting. We make very, very simple text written on the wall so people can understand the exhibition. But from the bump bump in, once bump in's completed, that's kind of the end of our job, you know, like it's, a, it's all of the mentoring and facilitating the talking, that is actually what we do. Once the work is in a room, it's kind of like, well, that's it. So maybe Tom and I could think about developing concepts which are about this facilitation that don't require exhibitions anymore. Mm. Um, so that I guess that's what we've been talking about the past two years. It just so happened that, you know, we were offered this beautiful exhibition space with a great team at Armitage Design Hub. We decided to work on this show this year, but we're forever talking about, you know, there's enough group shows, what can we do? Mm. Okay, well, actually, that's that's good because, yeah, my next question is kind of about what's next for you because I read recently that you only graduated nine or ten years ago. Is that right? Am I yeah, I feel way older right? than I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that is, <laughs> yeah that's kind of mind-blowing and you're actually making me feel really old. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but, you know, your work is part of institutional collections. You've won awards, um, you know, hot lists, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, yeah, obviously a long career ahead of you. What what else would you still like to do? Are there dream projects or, yeah, you've already said you're not really a long-term thinker, <laughs> so is it just what are you going to do tomorrow or, you know, what's uh, what's in the thinking there? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's been 10 years or so, yeah. I mean, I feel much older. I feel like I've been around forever, you know, like when I <laughs> want to hang out with Ross or Adam Goodrum, I'm like, yeah, I'm their age. Like I've been, I've been doing this for quite a long time. I mean, it's really hard to think about the future because the future is always changing. And so when I think about my, t- you know, 10 years ago, my youngest self, I wouldn't have even had the ideas to do any of what I've done now. So how could I ever dream or think of what that could have been as potential? So that's why I work with so many different people and try to talk to so many people about their practices because, you know, ideas only come from exchange. One of the best pieces of advice I was ever given when I was young is that you only know what you know. Mm. Um, So listen to the other person because you already know everything in your own brain. Um, And so I guess I don't really know what I'd like to do in the future. I mean, I'd like to be able to do a lot more facilitating within design practice. I think that that is actually my strong suit. I just so happen to have found success making work myself and with my brand. But I think my greatest strong suit is just working with people to produce great outcomes from them. So I've always thought about how how I could actually do that full time. But maybe it's a matter of all three inform each other. So having personal practice, friends and associates and Dow Jones, they all muddle up into this middle thing, which mm. just fill my brain with so much knowledge and maybe they're all required to be who I am. Yeah, I like that. I think sometimes it is necessary to have a balance of things that are constantly kind of feeding back into each other. But it does make me wonder how the hell you find the time to do it <laughs> well, all. I, so what's the secret? What's your tip? <laughs> have the most amazing wife in the world, I right. would say. Uh, well, it's really just, uh, you know, supportive supportive community. So it's people like, you know, I, I feel really silly mentioning this, but, you know, when I first moved to Melbourne, 
I didn't really know anyone. I might have known two people. People often are confused by that, thinking I lived in Melbourne, that's how I know everyone. I just mm. introduced myself or email people. You know, the best story I can give is when I first moved to Melbourne and I was studying furniture design, I really liked Ross Garden's work. I thought it was very interesting. I thought he looked like a great guy. So I emailed Ross and said, hey, Ross, I'm Dale. I just started studying furniture design. Would you go out for a coffee with me? Thinking, why would Ross ever go out for a coffee with me? <laughs> um, so we went out for a coffee and Ross turned out to be incredibly kind and generous. And so, you know, throughout my furniture design degree, we met several times and he gave me the time to show me, for me to show him the work that I was working on as a student. And he always took great interest. And we did that for a couple of years. Mm. Um, and I think even just what Ross did for me imbued into me what I should be to others. You know, like once you're... Once you are helped by others, you definitely should help other people around you. Mm. Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> Pay it forward mentality. <laughs> Absolutely. Huh? I mean, that. I guess I, I did write this down because I was thinking about this last night that, you know, if I ever tried to dream or map or think about what the future was for me, I, I might actually miss out all the unconventional and informal outcomes that could happen by, mm. um, by trying to stri stick to something that's so strict. Whereas, you know... I, I was sitting on a train, sitting on a tram last week, and I did this project with Anna Varendorf called Friends Pins, which is where we asked people, ten people, ten friends, to give us a pin, and we made them into pins. This representation of um, community during lockdown. We sold them at an auction and donated the money. And I thought, you know, Anna, we should really do more of those pins. So I just texted Anna saying, "Would you like to do an exhibition of a hundred pins? Who knows where? But let's work on it." And Anna said, "Great, that sounds fantastic." Um, I think it's all those like tram ideas, those shower ideas. You know, everyone has mm, ideas when they're in the shower. In the morning, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> they're the ones that maybe I think maybe what set me apart is that I just do them. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think there's a lot in that. Actually, I'm really glad that you said that. Um, there's definitely something about thinking about things, but just doing them as mm. well. Um, the risk of sounding like a sportswear brand tagline, <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> But I look, I have to say, from an outside perspective, as, as, as an observer, I suppose, of the design industry in, in Australia and a somewhat new observer, um, I, I'm taken by the camaraderie, I, you know, this sort of uh, community spirit, which, you know, is quite unique, I would say, in, in some sense. Um, and yeah, clearly you're playing a part in that and it's it's really wonderful to watch how it's all developing. So thank you so much for your time today, Dale. If I can tell one more anecdote please, to that. You know, please do. I, um, maybe three or four years ago, Damien Wright and I became aware of each other because I think we were mixing in the similar circles. And um, and so I wanted to invite Damien Wright to be one of the exhibitions we were working on for Friends and Associates. So I emailed Damien and said, hey, can we meet up? went to his workshop in Thornbury and, you know, within five minutes we liked each other. And it wasn't until maybe months later that Damien actually said to me he wanted to dislike me because he'd seen all the work that I'd done and who I was or whatever. And I think maybe that's my approach is that maybe people want to dislike me, but I just want to help them. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great anecdote. So thanks for sharing that. And now yeah. Damien Wright and I, you know, at very, very good almost best friends you know he's 20 years above me and we work we both help each other so incredibly much that like I couldn't be here today mm. talking on this podcast about work unless I'd met Damien four years ago that's wonderful well I hope it continues me too <laughs> thanks Dale thank you Susie